Anybody like cold brew? Dude, yesterday uh, there was this guy in town over by the barber shop, and he has this cold brew that he made called the Drank Tank, and it is the greatest cold brew in the history of, of the world. So go find it. It's not what I have. I just have your run-of-the-mill Starbucks. Hey, um, we're really, really excited at our church right now because we have officially come full circle in our seasons. This is the beginning of our second year of doing the season cycle for our church. For those of you that know that, um, every year we do four different seasons of emphasis for what we believe uh, spiritual development and discipleship and growth looks like. And so the last quarter of the year um, is when we started last year, we started with the last quarter and it's the season of invitation and it's just an opportunity for all of us to com completely engage in the entire idea of invitation. Everything from how God has invited us to how we're supposed to invite others into our lives, invite ourselves into people's lives, and to watch people invite Jesus into their life as a result of us living not just um, an invitational moment, but an invitational lifestyle. And so what we're getting ready to start next week to kick off that season is a series called RSVP, we'll see you there. We're going to start that series next week to really get our church headed in the right direction in terms of what invitation really, really looks like in terms of our relationship with God. And uh, just as a little bit of a prompt for you to engage in this series, it's very, very frustrating. And as a church, we experience this a lot where we invite people. And maybe you've done a wedding or a big party or whatever it is, and you've invited people to come to the wedding or to your party, or we have events all the time where we invite people to come, like we'll have a small group uh, leadership training, or we'll have a welcome team, whatever training, or whatever it is, and we'll have a training, and then we get an RSVP from people, and then what we do is we plan for the people that RSVP. And I am not kidding you, it's, it, it, every single time, I think the average is 25% under who RSVPs actually shows up. And it took us a while to learn that because, you know, people say they're going to do something and then they don't show up and then you've overbought or whatever. And so in, in terms of actually being invited into a relationship with God, a lot of us do that. We say that we're going to go, we say that we're in, but then we don't show up. And so the idea of this, this season of invitation is not to allow your faith to just be an RSVP, but to move into action, to move into steps. And so you're not going to want to miss next week as we open up the series. You're not going to want to miss this season in our church. It is, in fact, the most material, um, action-packed season of our church, and it, culm it culminates with everybody doing the obvious thing, which most people kind of... Uh, oversimplify invitation to, but it's still a very important aspect, the obvious piece of invitation, which is inviting a bunch of people to our church for the Christmas uh, celebration that we have at the end of the year. And so it's going to be exciting. You need to engage in that. We have been talking now for four weeks, today's the fourth week, uh, about conflict and relationship. And we've been talking about it as it pertains to all different types of relationships, um, marriage relationships, friendships. Um, father, son, daughter, kid, sibling, all the, all the different relationships that we have, and we've been talking about that. Now, 
we know that the uh, uh, patterns for most of us in, in the world and, and in church and stuff like that is we don't get to hear all the different messages. Now, this is one of those series that, like, if you sat down with me and you said, hey, what, like, what should I, you know, what should I watch first if I want to check out the church? I would tell you to go watch this series. And so if, like, in terms of actual practical life living every single day, um, change your life, relational dynamic, we're all relational beings. If life is healthy, it's because relationships are healthy. So if you want to engage this, you have to go back and watch this series. And you can go on Instagram TV um, and you can go uh, uh, and, and find it there and find some of the little shorts or you can find the full versions of the message on our website. And so we really, really, really want you to do that. I'm going to do a quick overview for those of you that have not been here for the past couple weeks or maybe you saw one or two of the messages. And again, in every single thing I'm about to say, there is such a depth and breadth uh, of what, what it means that for you to really wrap your mind and your heart around it, you're going to need to go back and listen to what we talked about. But the first week, what we talked about is this idea right here, bids for connection. And we looked at a a study that Harvard did of over 700 people for 75 years. And what they found was is that healthy relationships is what makes a happy life. Healthy relationships is what makes a happy life. Literally, they found that if you, even if you, you drink, smoke, sick, all the different things that can happen that can kind of hurt our lives, the most important thing that actually improves our lives is healthy relationship. And the number one indicator for healthy relationships was low-conflict quality relationships. Low-conflict quality relationships. And one of the things that we found in the research and that we also looked at uh, Dr. John Gottman, who has studied relationships for over 40 years, and he is like the marriage guru and relationship guru, is he said that the majority of conflict that happens between relationships is because of failed bid, bids for connection. Failed bids for connection. That even when we ask for someone to pass the chips, that even when we ask someone to turn that light off. That even when we just say, how was your day? Or even when we say, look at that bird. Or when we say, like, I'm not feeling really good. All of those things are actually invitations. They're bids for connection with the people around us. And when we actually move positively, and research shows, I mean, it is, it is, uh, it's empirical data that says when you move positively towards those bids for connection, uh, the majority of the time, relationships last longer, and those that don't end up in divorce. I mean, it is literally, on a, in a marriage context, it is amazing how important it is to make sure that you are in tune relationally with the people around you, and when they're trying to talk to you, that actually what they're trying to do is connect with you. They're actually trying to build a relationship with you. And if you take those bids, then you build relationships. And so we talked about that week one. You need to go back and watch uh, that message. It's a game changer. You start to go through your life and just start literally seeing the world through this lens of bids for connection. You know, when someone asks you for something, you might think that they're angry, but really maybe they're, they're actually like reaching out. You might think that they're, they're frustrated about something, but they really want you to involve. I mean, you start to look at what life is like through this bids for connection um, lens. It's a game changer. Week two, we talked about how conflict with others is really um, often about conflict with ourselves. That inside of us, so many of us have grown up 
in, in experiences. We've been around unsafe um, environments. We've been around uh, difficult traumatic experiences. And we've also made decisions at times where we kind of basically make everyone else's, um, make everyone else in the world, they're the, to blame for our problems. And when we actually step back and go, okay, even if I went through something difficult or if I've made a poor decision, I'm done blaming everybody else. I'm going to go look inside. I'm going to go through counseling because I have a plan in my life to have great relationships and plans fail for lack of counsel and with many counselors there is success and you want success in your relationships you have to have wise people who've been there done that who are experts in the way the brain works the heart works the way trauma works you need to sit with those people and go okay I'm frustrated with everyone out there and whenever you're frustrated with everyone out there just like in Genesis chapter 3 where they blamed everyone but themselves whenever you blame anybody else it's really because there's something broken down in you and when you start to unpack what's really going on in you you find that what you're looking for is something that you have to stop putting on everybody else and you have to move to God's, God towards and it's really um, quite a game changer. And then week three, we talked about understanding. We talked about understanding and how the secret to conflict is not to be right, is not to make a point, but to actually tell the people that you're engaging with that your goal in the interaction is to understand. That understanding turns conflict into something constructive. That when you stop thinking about the world in terms of what you can do, but how you can understand, it, it, it changes everything. That when we go to people that we care about and we have an interaction and they feel that we want to understand what they're saying, that actually an attempt of understanding and actually becoming understanding people is what builds trust. Because the key of understanding and what we talked about last week was that when we trust someone, it is because we believe that they care as much about us as they do about themselves. And the only way that happens is when that person genuinely seeks to understand the person on the other side of the table. I want to understand you because I want to care about what you care about and I'm going to show you that I care about what uh, matters to you. And one of the things we talked about, I'll say it again if you missed it because if you weren't here, I'm so sorry that you missed this, but John Gottman, again, studied 130 relationships for different four-year um, pockets of time throughout all of his research. One of the things he found is that people who are masters of marriage and masters of relationship, that they fight for this more than anything else. And that they actually have a motto, and the motto of those uh, marriage masters or their masters of relationship is, whenever anything is going wrong, my world stops and I listen. Because I want you to know that your world matters to me and I'm going to fight for understanding so that I can start to actually show you that I care about what you're going through. What you're going through. I mean, and we talked about how what, what wife doesn't want that? What kid doesn't want that? What, what person doesn't want someone that they call friend um, or, or uh, spouse or whatever? What person doesn't want to feel like the people around them genuinely care about them? Genuinely care about them. It basically takes conflict, it just flips it on its head and makes relationships completely different. 
And so that's just a recap of what we talked about the past couple weeks. I want to land the plane today where I believe that every great series should end and really every great um, school of thought or stream of consciousness as it relates to having a relationship with God. I believe that every single one of, of the thoughts that we have and the lens that we look through should all move to the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ is the... The embodiment of God. God wanted us to know what he was like, so he came down here and he, he joined us. He is God in the flesh. And so if we want to know how, how God wants us to live, if we want to know how we're supposed to relate to one another, if we want to know how the world's supposed to work, if we want to know how we're supposed to think, then we have to bring it all back to the person of Jesus Christ. And in the person of Jesus Christ, is everything, it's everything or it's nothing. It's nowhere in between. So when we realize that Jesus called himself God, and then he rose from the dead, and he offered that to those who follow him as, I'm the first, I'm the beginning, I'm the first fruits, anyone who follows after me will be my disciples, they'll look like me, they'll talk like me, they'll think like me, they'll behave like me, and then eventually they'll receive the same thing that happened to me, a glorious resurrection after death. Man, when we start to see that that's, that's, that's the thing that we're after here, then everything we do, everything that's important, money, our, um, our health, our relationships, it all has to be brought right back up to the person of Jesus Christ so that we can understand how we're supposed to live our lives. And one of the, the word that I'm going to talk about today, the word that I'm going to land the plane with as it relates to Jesus and as it re relates to relationships is this word right here. It's the word cherish. It's a great word. It's a great word that we don't use all the time, and I think it's good that we don't use it all the time because it lives in these places where we're supposed to actually cherish. If you think about the word cherish, it's a word that we always hear at weddings, right, when people are making their vows. I choose to love and cherish you for the rest of my life. And when we think about the word cherish and we look at what it is, we really have to dig deep into what does it really mean. What does it really mean to cherish something? What does it really mean to, to adore something is another word for it. You adore it. To take care of it. To keep it safe and improve it. This is what cherish means. To constantly communicate that you value it. To clean it, to wash it, to fix it. This is what cherish means. Now ultimately, in Christian relationships, we are supposed to, get this, cherish one another. We're supposed to cherish one another. We're supposed to adore one another. We're supposed to improve one another. We're supposed to care for one another. We're supposed to make safe the world around one another. We're supposed to improve our lives so that we can improve your lives. When you think about anything you cherish, how do you treat it? When you really cherish it. Now, most guys, if the first thing you went to is a car, that's the problem. But that's how we think, right? We cherish our car. We wipe it with a diaper every day. Look at my baby. We're supposed to treat people like that. Maybe you think about a guitar that you have. You cherish that guitar. I cherish this guitar. What do you do with a guitar that you cherish? You clean it. You keep it, um, you actually make sure it has a right uh, level of like air and, and a humidifier inside of it so that it doesn't get too dry. I mean, you cherish it. Anybody notice that today, we have a female drummer rocking the drums. Darby, are you in here? Nice, nice work, Darby. You could tell that Darby 
cherishes the drums, that she probably has all of her own different sticks and her own drum set. And when you cherish something, you really can tell, right? You know someone that cherishes something? People cherish, men cherish their Buckeye room. It's true, right? The way they act, make it clean, don't let anything unholy get in there like Michigan paraphernalia. Don't let, make sure that there's no stains, make sure it's clean and ready, make sure the chips and the guac cherish. You see, there's something that happens inside of us when we cherish something. We protect it, we clean it, we love it, we adore it. What do you adore? What do you adore? Wives, what does your husband adore? Does he adore you? Husbands, what, what does your wife adore? Lululemon? What do we really cherish? It's something that, that really takes the center of our heart. It takes the center of our emotion, what we really, really cherish. We cherish certain things, and we're supposed to cherish one another. One of the hallmarks of the Christian life is we are supposed to cherish one another. We are supposed to look at each other and go, there's nothing more important, there's nothing more beautiful, there's nothing more valuable than these friends of mine, than these co-workers of mine, than this spouse of mine, these children of mine. We're supposed to cherish. And ultimately, when we talk about this song that we all sing, I'll follow you anywhere, what that means is that God is going to challenge you to go somewhere you don't want to go. And ultimately, we lose focus of who we're supposed to cherish. And God says, you're supposed to cherish your friends. And when we stop feeling that way, he's going, you want to follow me? I love my enemies. I cherish my enemies. I die for my enemies. I adore my enemies. I take care of my enemies. I will wash away their sin. I will care for them. I will love them. You're supposed to follow me anywhere. And that the problem with that song, and not that the, the, the song's awesome, the problem for us with that song is that we, we actually think we'll follow God anywhere, but then when we have people around us who rub us the wrong way, we don't want to cherish them anymore. You want to follow God anywhere? Choose to cherish humanity. This is why certain acts of genocide and World War II and these ideas of wiping out mass populations and, and slavery, these are egregious, disgusting ideas when we look at a Christian worldview. Because above all else, we're supposed to cherish one another. The whole Christian life has validity, has something to stand upon, has something to represent when we love one another. Jesus Christ said people will know, they'll know that you follow me by the way you cherish one another. What do we cherish? My heart, my burden for you today is that in this final day of touche, that you would understand that when we cherish one another, it changes relationships. That when we cherish one another, it's, it just, it, it radically reforms what the Christian life looks like. And ultimately, when we cherish one another, relationships change. When we cherish one another, relationships thrive. So I'm going to talk about three things that are low-hanging fruit, really practical things that you guys 
can just grab right now and go, okay, those are easy ways to cherish, and then I'm going to land the plane with the why and the driving force behind why we should do these three things. Okay, the first one comes from Ephesians chapter 4. And you can open up, it's not Achievens, it's Ephesians. But, I mean, sucker, you can call it whatever you want. Um, Ephesians, I mean, if you're trying to find Ephesians and you call it Achievens, I'm just glad you're in your Bible, so it's fine. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, such a great uh, piece of scripture that you need to, you need to spend time uh, working through. But in Ephesians chapter 4, what Paul is doing is he's giving kind of the basis for Christianity, how we have a relationship with God, who Jesus is, what the theology is, and how we are now in Christ. In this, in this book, he, he says the, the phrasing in Christ like 36 times, which means that ultimately like we are becoming like Christ, we're connected to Christ, and who Christ is is who we're becoming. And therefore, in chapter 4, 5, and 6 of this six-chapter book, now you're supposed to live a certain way. So in Ephesians chapter 4, what he dives into is like the Christian living. Actually, the heading for this in Ephesians chapter 4, it's like Christ, Christian living. So basically, because of Jesus and the theology behind who Jesus is and who God is, now you should live this way. And so if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 29, I'm going to put up on the screen. I have a couple different passages today. We know that it's not very bright enough to see yet in here. We know that. But, you know, just let your iris open up on your eye. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, he says this. I just want to, I want to camp on this for just a second. Cherish. Cherish one another. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. When I was growing up, they used this passage at church for not cussing. Don't cuss. That's not what he's talking about. Okay, this isn't saying don't curse, don't use that word. Look what he goes on, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk, unwholesome. Words that help people. Words that when they're heard, improve people's lives. Wholesome, ooh, that's good, ooh, that enriches me, that makes my life better. Don't let anything, just don't let anything out of your mouth other than words that bring people up when they hear them. Make them more whole. So here's how you can think of the world, right? If you look at this word, wholesome, what's, what word is in there? The word whole. You know what most people are? Broken, halves, pieces, parts. God's plan for us in cherishing one another is that everything we say takes the brokenness of the people around us and somehow helps put them back together, builds them up, edifies them. Don't let anything come out of your mouth that doesn't make people whole. Talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building Building. Now, right now, we're building a building at the church. It is, ex building. we're not building a building at the church. We're building a church at the land. You, you know what I mean. It is a serious project. It's serious, man. It is timelines. And the other day, uh, Mark Malin was here, and we were looking at the, the, the blueprints, the, the big, real blueprints that are in there that all the people that know what they're doing look at. This thick, man, it's like 80 to 120 different blueprints. This is a serious project. This is intentional effort to build a building. Do you know how unimportant the building is compared to humans? It is nothing. It is concrete. It has no life. It just stands there, and it will wear out just because of the weather. And if God wants to, he can wipe it off the face of the planet with a tornado any minute. And he can do that to us too, but we live forever. So there's a, it's a breakdown. Listen, 
My point is this. Building something is a serious intentional effort. When we use our words in relationship, you need to build the people around you. Say things that build them up, that make their life whole. Everything you can think of. I don't like the idea, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. Um, it is better to not speak than say something bad. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. Jesus doesn't say, live your life pulled back, pulled away. He says, you are supposed to be an active agent representing me, moving and bringing light and goodness into the world. Therefore, you cannot just be sitting here paralysis through analysis, thinking of what good thing to say. You need to be actively pursuing wonderful things that communicate you adore the people around you. Do the people around you think that you think about them? Building others up according to their own needs that it may benefit those who listen. I did a message, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but I said this, and this is true. When we look at how God created the world, it says, and God spoke and he made the world with his words. And here's the truth about what we say. Words create worlds. What we say to our children creates what they see the world like. What we say to one another creates how people feel about themselves. What we say to one another determines whether or not someone feels whole or broken or more or less. We have to understand the power of our words. The brother of Jesus says there's so much power in the tongue that it can burn down a whole forest fire, that it can turn the whole uh, direction of a ship, that it can it can just move a whole giant, uh, muscular, beautiful horse. Like the words that we say, they create things. They create things. They create things for us. Imagine, I mean, this could be the whole message today. Just if we used our words to only build people up. Let's move to the next thing. That's the first thing. Words create worlds. Cherish. How do we cherish with our words? We looked at this passage um, last week. This is an amazing passage. And to get the backdrop for this passage, go back and listen to last week. But this is 1 Corinthians 13. This is the passage that's read at most weddings, but it's not a wedding passage. It's a relationship passage. It transcends weddings, and it's talking about how humans are becoming love, that ultimately our destiny is to become loving creatures, people who look like Jesus, okay? So we're supposed to become love, and it goes through all these different things of what love looks like. It's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. I told you to go and read this. You need to look at this every single day and start to do things inside of this. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And this is what I want to look at. It keeps no record of wrongs. No records of wrongs. Wow. When you think about cherishing something, do you, do you try to remember all the bad things that you cherish? No. In fact, the loving attitude towards people is, I want to wipe away. <laughs> I don't want to think about the bad. I want to think about the good. I'm literally going to keep a record of rights. That's what cherishing, loving Christians do. They keep a record of rights, and then Ephesians chapter 4, they just say it all the time. Hey, remember that one time you did that thing? I love it when you do that. You're very good at this. You're very good. You, whatever it is, I appreciate you. I see in you something great. Whatever it is, it's, I'm not keeping a record. I mean, how do you have a relationship with someone who every time they talk to you, they bring up a couple things you did wrong? I mean, that's, that's not a relationship, man. That's called court. 
That, that's, not, that's not a relationship. That, that, is, that is a very, very antagonistic interaction. Every single time we talk, you tell me something that I did wrong about my, to you or that I did wrong, you're never going to feel cherished around someone who all they do is scorekeep. And if we don't all move towards what it looks like to cherish one another, you can never score keep if you decide that you're going to start to cherish people. Because you're looking for the good and you're, you're speaking the good. Right now, um, my wife and I, we have two uh, kids that are in sports. And I'm constantly texting her, like yesterday morning, Kellen's game, what the score is. Ooh, three to one, ooh, two to, two to three, whatever it is, score, score, score. I am literally, actively, standing on the sidelines of a soccer game, keeping score. And I thought to myself, this is what we do in relationships that break down. We just literally look on the sideline of each other's lives, and we go, oop, you messed up, oop, you messed up, oh, you did that, you did that. We're supposed to be actually looking at all the good things that people do and keeping a record of them and then telling them to them in special times. That's what you do if you cherish. I mean, you think for a second, it all makes sense hypothetically and ethereally. We love this idea, of course I'm not gonna be negative. But I gotta tell you what, my son scores a goal, my son makes a bad pass, my son does something. You think that I bring him over the sidelines and after the end of the game, if he scored a goal and had a good pass but he had five other things that maybe he didn't do right because he's nine and he's just learning and it's not my job to point out what's so negative about him but to build him up and to cherish him and to make sure that he knows I love him. You think I'm gonna tell him the things he did wrong? I'm gonna tell him what I, what I saw. That goal was awesome. You wanna cherish? Stop keeping score of wrongs. Stop, start keeping score of rights. Make a list. People who are great at relationships, they care so much about people that when they have a good thought about those people, they open up their phone and they write it down so they can tell it to them at the right time. They, they go into meetings with people and they intentionally stop the meeting to point out something good. People who are great at marriages in front of their children say something great about their spouse. Stop keeping score. This is what cherishing is like. Now the last thing I'm gonna talk about, which we can talk about forever and I only have nine minutes left, is the five love languages. Raise your hand if you heard the five love languages. It's a very big uh, concept that kind of change the world and change the way people view relationships. And ultimately, you take this test and you learn what your love languages are, your love language is, and you kind of learn who you are and what you're like and how you like to be communicated to and what communicates love to you. And there's five different love languages, and these are my broke down versions of acts of kindness, um, gift giving, uh, quality time, physical touch, and words of affirmation. Those are the different ones. Now, now th there's a lot to say about this, a about uh, the five love languages. But here's what I see the biggest problem with the five love languages is and what people do most of the time. People spend all their time studying what their language is and wanting everybody to talk to them the way they want to be spoken to. They go, so for me, physical touch, words of affirmation. For me, this would look like all I do is I just, I go to people and my disposition towards people is 
I want you to speak affirmative words to me. I want you, if you want to get through to me, you need to do this. You need to give me a hug. You need to tell me something positive. If you want to speak to me, you need to learn my languages. language. And the entire ethos of the five love languages is the opposite. It is so that you can look at the world, see what people are and how they get communicated to, and learn a foreign language. You see, our job is to look at the people around us and go, what makes them feel loved, and then actually go through the Rosetta Stone process of learning the language of gift giving. If your love language is words of affirmation, which mine is, it is easy for me to use words and say stuff like that. But if I actually want to get through to someone who likes gift giving, do you think this works? No, you have to start giving gifts. Because if someone speaks Chinese, I gotta learn Mandarin. Not, imagine the, the, the insanity of this idea. I'm traveling to China, so I send an email to all of the powers that be where I'm gonna be spending my time and say, would you please spend the next six months learning English so we can communicate? That's what people do with the love language. Learn my language, talk to me, they get upset. Why do you say that to me? Why, do you talk, why don't you do this to me? The whole purpose of the love language is so that you can understand the people around you, speak their language, and cherish them by communicating love to them in a way that they understand. You wanna to start to cherish people? Be consumed with learning their language, not making sure they know yours. Be consumed with learning the people around you their language. What do they like? What makes them tick? What, 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 what communicates value to them? They, quality time? Man, that is so hard for me. But my middle son, Jet, he needs quality time. And if I expect him to take my words of affirmation to be the way that he feels loved, then I get to live with the tragedy of a parent, uh, uh, as a parent, of never actually communicating in an effective way to my son that I love him because I was speaking Mandarin and he spoke a different language. Cherishing. Speaking these words. Stopping keeping a record of wrongs. These are ways we cherish, and this is all laid out for us in the scriptures through the person of Jesus in John 13, and I want you to open up your Bibles, and we have five minutes, and I'm actually going to land the plane here. It's gonna happen right now. I, I, I don't promise, <laughs> but I'm trying. I'm, do, I'm gonna do the best that I can. In John 13, what we see is as the writer of this book is taking us to the first rung of the ladder that leads Jesus to ascension, to be with the Father. So the writer is starting this new section that says now Jesus is going to do something symbolic to represent the kind of love that he has for people. He's going to show his disciples a very material way that they can live their lives and cherish one another. And then he's ultimately going to display that in the way that only he can display it through dying on a cross. And then he's going to raise from the dead. And then he's ultimately going to ascend to the Father. So one way to think about this passage, uh, there's many ways, but one way for you to think about it, for me to think about it, is this. What Jesus does in this passage, which is he washes feet, and we'll talk about that for a second, is it is the beginning steps of your ultimate destination. And so if you and I want to eventually ascend to the Father, if you and I want to spend our life in eternity with God, then what happens on earth is going to look like this. This is what it looks like 
This is step one of the ladder to move up into that relationship with God. This is what Jesus does. And so it unpacks here. So we're going to read this. Jesus, he goes in and he's having dinner and uh, he's having a very important dinner, the Passover. And he has someone with him there that's going to betray him. And ultimately what he does is there's an outer garment, the way that these men would dress. And he takes off his outer garment as if to say, I'm going to kind of become someone other than I am. I'm going to humble myself. This is the idea of if I'm a king, I'm going to take off my robe. I'm going to, I'm going to become someone else. I'm going to humble myself. And what he does is he gets on the ground and he washes the disciples' feet. And he does this thing that's so incredible. He washes their feet. And when he's done washing their feet, he stands up and he says this. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes, put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand that I have done for you? Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher. You call me the teacher. You call me the Lord and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I am your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what he does is he decides to show the disciples that what you need to do on earth is cherish one another. You need to cherish one another. And in a world that spends all of its time trying to become the boss, trying to get the raise, trying to be the most important, in the world that, that, that teaches us all that we have to raise up the ladder by ourselves. what Jesus does is he decides to go to the bottom and he decides to become a servant. You see, it's so true, right? We live in a world that works to climb the ladder, not to, not to go down it. And what Jesus does, and it's amazing if you look at this passage, because before that it says that all the authority has been given to Jesus. He has all the power, and ultimately it's like God went, okay, so now the embodiment of everything you are, everything that you came to be, the mission, the, the spiritual mission of what you came to do, we're going to move in that direction now. And he's like, okay, so now I have, all, I have all the keys, I have all the power, everything's on me, it's all me, I'm God in the flesh, and this right now represents what it looks like to be um, a, a totally um, incredible human right now, this is what it is. Yeah, and he goes, okay, and he takes off his outer robe, and he gets out on his knees, and he does the thing that servants do. He does the thing that servants do. Now, as I read this passage, it's very convicting to me, because I live and do this job where I get to serve all of you, but I, I get to, like, get a lot out of it. People watch me, they hear my messages, I get to serve, and then, you know, it's like, a lot of people are like, thank you, you know, thank you for serving us, it's so great that you serve us, so great that you, you, you know, you do that. I have a visible presence of serving in this community. 
And we live in a time and a place where when somebody sacrifices to a degree or they do something in ministry, people look at that and they go, that's really good. And I've actually been around men who have taken times to bring people up on the stage and wash their feet. And when they do that, it's like this kind of double-sided coin of servanthood, but also like, wow, like there, there's a level of prominence, like they're, they're serving so well that like I want to be like them, I want to look like them, and they become like this leader by serving. And so when we wash feet or we do ministry in a public sense, what we're doing is we're doing what Jesus did. We're doing it. It's like, okay, so when we do what Jesus did and we serve, and we do it so everyone can see it, everyone goes, well, that's what you're supposed to do, do what Jesus did, and then there's a little bit of, uh, of, a little bit of pride that comes with doing what Jesus did. And what you need to understand about this passage is that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he wasn't doing something that the Jesus before him did or that God did. He was doing something that servants do, that no one saw, that communicated utter humility. When Jesus washed feet, he was doing what servants do. You see, sometimes when we do things up in front or whatever, we do it so people can see it, we do it so people can hear it, it kind of gives us a pat on the back. But the idea behind cherishing is that you're going to do something private. You're going to do something that is humble. You're going to do something that is strictly about the people that you're trying to communicate you cherish to. You're just going after that. And you're not going to receive any kind of accolades for it. You're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it to show the people you care about, that you care about them. And as you go through that process and you pray for them and you care about them, you make decisions that are truly about them. And what Jesus did here is he gave us a pattern. He gave us a pattern to cherish one another. He gave us a pattern to do the thing that servants do, to do the thing that if someone was following around your loved one and they exist to help them and aid them, you do that thing. You become that person. You be that voice. You be those hands. You do that thing that you would pay someone else to do. You do it. Kind of makes cleaning the dishes and taking the trash out seem ridiculous, doesn't it? It's so small. So here's the deal. When we look at what Jesus did, he washed their feet. He was doing something that servants do. He was communicating that he cherished those men above all else, that he would serve them, that he would do anything for them. And then he went and he died on a cross, which was the only thing that he could do that could genuinely forgive them and give them freedom from death. And he went and did that. And when we say that we cherish somebody, then what's supposed to happen is that our lifestyle is supposed to become that of private service to the people we love where it's about them. We create their world with edifying words. We stop keeping records of wrongs. We do these, these things that, that are remarkable and communicate value to people. Saying you cherish someone is proven by serving them as a way of life. Saying you cherish someone is proven by serving them as a way of life. And here's the part that doesn't land well with everybody, and here's the part that's really, really hard, is it actually it's not a way of life. It's actually a way of death. You see, what Jesus does here is he sacrifices everything he is. He's the king, 
he serves. <clears throat> He's the, 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 the perfect man of God. He dies as a sinner on a cross. He sacrifices. It's painful. It's humble. It's hard work. And when we as Christians are given the ethos of who God is and what the cross represents, it starts to spill out into our lives of just becoming the kind of people who cherish those around us. And ultimately what this does is it just starts this cascade. It's a cascade that takes place. You start to sacrificially love the people around you. You cherish them. And this is what happened in Jesus' life. Jesus served his disciples and he died for them. And as a result, they died for him. And what we see is that when you show sacrificial love to the people around you, that it transforms the people around you into people of sacrificial love. And the world gets the church. And the world gets to change. And the world gets more followers of Jesus. Follow Jesus. Cherish people as a way of death. Give up your life for the people around you. And watch the people around you come to life. So we're going to, I'm going to pray. And we're going to stand up. And we're going to sing follow you. Follow you. And as we sing this song, I want you to think about following Jesus in your relationships. Following Jesus with your words. Following Jesus with not keeping score. Following Jesus by cherishing the people around you. So let's go ahead and stand and I'm going to say a prayer for us. Father, thank you so much for giving us the example that you gave us. Giving us a pattern. Something we can actually follow. That we can serve and we can sacrifice, and we can communicate to the people around us that we cherish them. God, forgive us for our pride, for considering our interests above our, our friends, our spouses. God, please help us to model you, to emulate you to the world that we're living in. In Jesus' name.
follow Jesus into this world, cherishing the people around you in a very new way, and watch conflict disappear and relationships reappear and thrive. And email me and tell me how God is using these truths to change your life. I guarantee it's going to be amazing. So we love you guys. We'll see you next week for RSVP.